0: clean line design that sets it apart from the lookalike. Business is built on data, facts, and figures. It's also made up of some of the most fascinating stories the world has known. What makes business tick? What are the stories we can find in their failures and victories? Get ready to find out what some of today's leaders were thinking, right now, on Business Disrupted. Here is your host, Ted Gavin.
1: Welcome to Business Disrupted. I'm pleased to welcome a guest today who defies simple explanation. A world-class athlete, a savvy and tactically astute businesswoman, creator of what was at the time the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game, one-time focus of U.S. attorney Preet Bharara's prosecutorial whims, a motivational speaker, the author of the book, and subject of the Oscar-nominated film Molly's Game, Molly Bloom. Molly, welcome to the show. It's a delight to have you on today.
2: Thanks, Ted. It's so great to be here.
1: So where do we start there? there, There's a long history that brought you to building and running a $4 million a year entertainment business or event business, um, built around a a poker game or several poker games. It would become, where, where does your story start?
2: Well, I think it has to start where they all start, right? (laughs) Beginning. (laughs) That's right. Uh, you know, I was, um, from a small town in colorado two great parents that kind of stood on their own individual platforms my dad's you know battle cry was uh excellence and self-discipline and combat fear and my mom's was um and is integrity and and uh kindness and i had two i have two uh brothers who kind of came out the womb like little prodigies,
1: <laughs> competitive environment. <laughs> yeah.
2: My youngest brother is, is quite an extraordinary athlete. He, uh, at 18 years old was number one in the world in mogul ski, freestyle skiing. He went on to win three world champs, compete in two Olympics. And then he went to the NFL combine and got drafted fifth round of the Philadelphia Eagles. So you can imagine that this kid was just a phenomenal athlete from the beginning. And my brother, my middle brother, was just super smart and always knew what he wanted to do. Um, and now he's a Harvard professor and a cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General. So, you know, I I kind of was trying to figure out what my place in the world was, what my place in this family was and uh, look to sports and academics as well. Uh, I, you know, I, I was a mogul skier too and um, also a, a very serious student, but never on the level that my brothers were. Um, and, you know, that that's kind of the, the beginnings of
1: it. Well, that's, that's, that's saying something, um, it, it, growing up in a family of, of overachievers can't be easy under the best of circumstances. I have absolutely no frame of reference because I'm an only child. And so, you know, the notion of siblings is, is all very conceptual to me, okay. but you know, you, you write in your book that that you had aspirations of pursuing law, but but that, that that was an expectation that was more or less imposed upon you.
2: Yeah, it's hard to know where that started. Um, I, I just remember, you know, my dad, Jordan was always going to be the surgeon, always. And mm. Jeremy was always the athlete. And my dad, you know, kind of said like, well, you like to read a lot and argue, you should maybe be an attorney. <laughs> and then it became... It became the path um and you know then something very disruptive happened at 12 years old and i was competing locally in skiing and and i, I was diagnosed at 12 years old with very severe scoliosis mm-hmm. The doctors detailed this operation that i was going to have to have in which they were going to take bone out of my hip and fuse my top 11 vertebrae together and put these two uh you know titanium rods down the whole section of my back basically rendering 80% of my spine immovable. Um, and I was so steadfast and so determined that I would, you know, that I was gonna be part of this family too in the way that it mattered, which was like sports and, and academics, that after that surgery, even though the doctors told me that my mogul skiing career was over, I still got back on the mountain. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I, I I worked really hard through a lot of pain and a lot of, you know, tough circumstances. Um, because I, I just wanted, I, I wanted to be, I, I wanted to matter in my family, you know, and, and I, I chased these dreams so far, and then kind of got to this place where I was like, "But are these my dreams? You know, yeah. is this what I want to do?"
1: And that that can't be easy when you feel like you're you're wrapping your identity up in expectations of something that you, you feel has been dropped on you.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I think there comes a time where there's a bit of a reckoning
1: yeah.
2: and, and you're forced to, to kind of figure out who you are, you know, that starts in adolescence and continues throughout our whole life. Um, but in, in my case, my, my hand was forced, you know,
3: because, yeah.
2: um, I actually made the U S ski team and, was ranked third overall in North America and then, you know, made it all the way to the, um, the nationals that year, which was also an Olympic qualifier and then had this horrific crash.
1: Yeah. You skied off the side of a mountain basically and, 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 and met gravity.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Gravity. And I were not great friends that day. Um, but you know, it just, it really forced me to, to kind of look at this whole picture and and say like, what am I doing? Yeah. this is crazy and, and this isn't maybe even my
1: dream. Well, that, so, so you're at this inflection point and you, you finish college, you decide to take a break.
2: I actually took a break before I finished college. I had, oh. I had five classes left.
1: Okay. So and, you, you took the break.
2: Yeah. Well it was supposed to be a break.
1: <laughs> well, it's nothing's you're not done yet. <laughs> but, but you but you, you took what was supposed to be a break and found yourself in Los Angeles.
2: I did. Yep. I, I wanted to just kind of take a breather. You know, I'd had this very serious career of professional skiing and, and also a very serious uh, career as a student. And I just wanted a year to kind of be a kid and, and, and have an unregimented existence. It just, yeah. you know. So I went to Los Angeles.
1: The, the home of unregimented existences. That's right. If you're yeah. anywhere other than Los Angeles. I
2: was in good company <laughs> for that goal.
1: So not wanting to, uh, to walk step by step through your book or the movie, uh, but you, you end up working for a real estate firm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which through a series of, of events ends up running the Viper Room, which was in receivership. At the time, a, a famed club on the Sunset Strip.
3: Yep, that's correct.
1: And some high stakes poker players approach the the fellow who, who runs your firm or owns your firm and says, we want to start a high stakes poker game at the Viper Room. Yep. And, and now, as the person who's left at the Viper Room to do all of the detail work while your boss is off being whatever he is and doing whatever he does. Um, You now have a high stakes poker game to run from to create from whole cloth.
2: Well, the game was kind of already set up. I was brought on to serve drinks in the beginning. Okay. Um, But I recognized really early on uh, that this was an incredible opportunity for me. Yeah. because the type of people that were playing in this game, they were, you know, they were, Extremely powerful people in politics. They were uh, prolific people in tech. Uh, you know, the head of Hollywood studios, the head of investment banks, A-list actors. Uh, you know, it was just, it, it was a a very um, advantageous room to be in.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I realized that whoa, this is this is a very interesting way to network at 24 years old, and. Right to have access to information and capital and power. And so I, you know, I sort of reasoned, well, if I could have, if I could own this game and and produce these events for people, that could be a really cool thing to do for a while and save some money and make some contacts and then go back to law school or whatever I was planning on doing.
1: Right. And, and that is unusual that an opportunity like that just sort of falls into one's lap. No question. but it's, it's, it would be unfair to say that you didn't earn the opportunity. You know, you didn't magically show up in Los Angeles on a Tuesday and, and, and get this game handed to you on a Wednesday. There was a long period of doing a lot of unpleasant things dealing in the, in the service sector to get to that point.
2: Yeah, uh, you, yeah, I put my time in, that's for sure.
1: Okay. Um, so, so this is a captive poker game. It's, it's kind of a closed-dish group of, of the same people with the same person kind of running it. What are the economics of this type of game?
2: At, at this point, it was a $10,000 buy-in. Okay. Blinds were fifty one hundred for those of you that know poker. Um, and, you know, at the end of the night I was making three or $4,000 just for uh, refilling drinks.
1: And so that's, that's tip income.
2: That's tip income. Okay. When I took over the game, I raised stakes to fifty thousand dollars. Right. Blinds went up to one hundred, two hundred. People were winning and losing six figures, six and seven figures. Um, it was a big game, and it was a very notorious game, both in in Hollywood and and in the poker
1: world. Right. And and in notorious, where you're talking about the notoriety of the game, not that there was something um, malicious. Or 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 dark about the game, or was there?
2: Uh, no, no, they're not notorious like um, criminal. Like, but,
1: criminal. <laughs> yeah, good. <Not> yet. <laughs> so this is you know this is an interesting management lesson for a twenty four year old uh, handed this responsibility, um, and handed is is not intended to mean achieved easily. What? How did you approach managing this game? What what went into the process of managing? a high stakes poker game that happened every week or, or, or so?
2: Well, first of all, I, I learned one of the most important lessons that I've ever learned at 25 when I decided to go off and start my own games. And that is that, you know, the, one of the ways to get ahead in life and something that a person should become quite comfortable with or, or, you know, find their way around is, is how to take calculated risks. Um, I was not a favorite in this case. I was young and inexperienced, and a lot of people didn't believe that I could kind of take over this game or or run this company, and and I thought I could. And and what I did is I spent a lot of time studying the, the game and studying the people that played and figuring out ways to do it better and figuring out ways to create really memorable experiences. And so, you know, there was a couple different factors in terms of the management of the game. First of all, there was the um, collections and payout, mm-hmm. um, and keeping track of all the figures. Um, then there was managing the personalities. Yeah, you know?
1: well, that that opens up a big door. Managing <laughs> personalities. Um, how how do player egos threaten the game's survival? Because at a, at a point, this game becomes your your livelihood, your business, That's right. how, how do player egos threaten the viability of this type of thing? And how did you manage them?
2: So in the beginning, I mean, you can tell a lot about a person by the way that they win and lose money a lot.
1: That's a, that's, that, that's a revealing statement. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, and you can also, um, you know, there, these are also people who have gigantic personalities. Um, you know, the, these are some of the most powerful, wealthy, famous people in the world. And in the beginning, every time somebody would get upset, I, I would be in fear. You know, I, I thought the thing was so fragile. I thought that one person pissed off could, you know, bring the whole thing down. And, and, you know, there's some level of truth to that. But what I realized is that if you create a product or a business, that is very valuable and very superior, that it's not as fragile as one person's personality. Yeah. Um, In terms of like getting upset. Now, if somebody goes after you and tries to take your business, which ultimately happened to me um, six years later, uh, that's a different story, you know, but in terms of the the temper tantrums, the dissatisfaction, I mean, you you can imagine 50% of the room is pissed off at the end of the night. Right. Like really pissed off, you know. And thinks that and and when gamblers lose money, it's always like the dealer was crap or the room wasn't what I want. You know, they're always looking to to point fingers. And so I learned to just um, try to you know not not play into all that so much.
1: So you've just differentiated between internal tensions, you know, player player ego and 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 the the emotional reaction of of a poker player mm-hmm. versus external tensions and and competition mm-hmm. you yeah, and, yeah. and and since you brought it up let's talk about that what happened with respect to external competition and and trying to to take over your game because you know this is a pretty rarefied environment it's not as though you're going to find three high stakes poker games on three corners of a busy intersection
2: that's right No, it's, it's, it's a hard game to fill um, at at these stakes. And um, remember, I'm not, I'm not allowing pros to play. These are all amateurs and these are all people that don't, you know, these are all people that have other jobs, don't play poker for a living. So if it was pros, I could have filled it all day, every day, but. Right. Um, And I also needed to make sure that the nine seats were populated by people that played into this exclusivity and, and this, you know, this, this elevated uh, community. So, yeah, it was not an easy game to fill and and I worked really hard and got, was very strategic about um, finding these people uh, and, uh, you know, I, I ran these, the, this game for six years and made millions of dollars. Uh, it was an incredibly exciting time in my life, I was also learning about all these other industries. I was investing in art, I was investing in tech and finance and I was you know, I was just getting this incredible education. And then one of the players started to become really envious about how much money I was making and kind of the position of power that I had and um, was kind of begging or was kind of like demanding compliance in certain ways. For example, wanted me to cap my tips. Um, You know, I was working for, for only tips um, and I was still making, you know, three, $4 million a year. Um, because I, you know, I, I, I held the key. Like I, if people wanted to play in the game, if they wanted to have credit to play in the game, um, that all came from me. So right. people were really generous in terms of the compensation winners tipped a lot.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And one of the players got very envious uh, about this and, um, you know, basically, in the end, ended up taking the game and and kind of blowing it up a couple of years later. But but that's what happened,
1: right? And and that you know that person didn't want the poker game; they they wanted control. That's right. And so, how much of this do you, well? We're gonna. I'm going to ask you about kind of systemic and inherent sexism later. Yeah. But it, it does, it does ask the question itself right now, how much of that is, is sexist in nature that, you know, they wouldn't have tried this had it been, you know, a six and a half foot tall man running the game.
2: <laughs> um, yeah. Listen Ted, that. That thought has crossed my mind plenty of times. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think that there's some some truth there, but I think, I also think that success is hard. There's a ton of friction. There's mm-hmm. a ton of obstacles. Um, did I come up with, you know, against obstacles being in this male dominated world, um, not having any recourse on being, you know, collecting money, not being a tough guy, uh, you know, not getting the respect, especially in the beginning that I deserved you know mm-hmm. in the beginning there are these old you know like older guys that had played in these games around town that wouldn't even look me in the eye and talk to me they would talk to other people about how much they credit they could get and you know I'm I'm but you know I'm the bank right. <laughs> the right. finance firm. so I came up against you know a lot of sexism and and I think that my philosophy was my ability to be successful in life is going to depends each and every time on how well I navigate these obstacles.
1: Right. Right. We're talking with Molly Bloom. If you have questions, tweet them to us at B-I-Z Disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. Before the, I guess the that's the Los Angeles game that we were just talking about before the Los Angeles game um, it, it moved away from you and you you relocated, what were the cash flow? What, what are the cash flows of this business? You know, what's what, what's the amount of money that's moving around week to week? What is? What are the financials of of this business that you built look like?
2: Um, millions every week for sure. Um, and you know, at the end of the year, I did well. <clears throat> the goal of of this business was to have similarly skilled. Um, you know, people of similar financial status that you can have big results within each game, but at the end of the year, when it shakes out, nobody's hurt too badly. Right. Um, If you're, if I'm doing my job well, that, and it's exciting and it's this memorable experience and people get to feel like James Bond and it's, you know, there's all these things. um, But at the end of the year, nobody's up that much and nobody's down that much.
1: And, Um, and it's, it occurs to me that you really need to put a lot of time and a lot of effort into choreographing the mix of people because you need to make sure that you've got a a you know a, a pretty well-matched group of players then.
2: Yeah, that's a critical piece of it.
1: And, and what were the challenges in doing that? Because I'm, I'm sure there are some players who would love to play against thoroughly inept poker players who have far more money than they have the will to walk away.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, again, you know, I the pros from Vegas were offering me everything under the sun to get into this game. But I, you know, that I knew that that would destroy the game. So the challenges were, were what they always are. You know, people that sit down and play each other for big sums of money every week. There's going to, you know, resentments are going to be generated. Personalities are going to conflict. And you have such a small, limited pool you're choosing from. So what you have to try to do is you have to try to get ahead of those. You know, yeah. you have to preempt that. You have to try to solve the problem before the problem erupts. So there was a lot of that.
1: Yeah. And, and that sounds like managing personalities more than anything.
2: Yeah. It was. There was a huge amount of managing personalities that was critical for the success of this game.
1: Yeah. Uh, you write in your book about four lessons for keeping the game successful. And, and those lessons were make sure your players are always comfortable, mm-hmm. feed the machine new blood, be irreplaceable, and to remember that it's always about the money. <laughs> and it strikes me that these are four kind of business truisms, right? Right particularly in any type of, of services oriented business, you want to make sure you're focusing on customer attentiveness. You want to stay focused on developing your pipeline. You, by being irreplaceable, you're focusing on customer attachment and you want to make sure that the customer understands that it's their value proposition and that you're managing their value perception. That's all always about the money. And so it comes down to really creating an authentic customer experience. Uh, What did you do to create that authentic customer experience, particularly when your customers individually are so different from each other in, in many ways?
2: I tried to be be very vigilant about recognizing where the points of friction were. Anytime I sensed frustration from a player um, and, 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 I'm a big believer in the small details, you know, yeah. I think all the details matter. Um, so anything like as small as I, I noticed that when, when dinner came, you know, dinner time came and it was, you know, catered, or we ordered from people's favorite restaurants or whatever, um, people uh, got frustrated, The the people that were down or people that were up, a lot of the players got frustrated. Um, and it was a really big point of friction. So I had custom side tables built so that we could serve the food um, during the play. And it was just, you know, it was staying on cue of all of these points of friction and also of the things that I felt we could do better and using your own humanity. What makes you feel comfortable? When you walk into a room, do you feel better if it smells? like a, a nice scented candle, or if it's not like, you know, old food. Um, does the lighting matter? Lighting matters so much. Um, you know, I, I noticed that the players, they sat there for hours and hours upon end and they, their shoulders got sore. So I brought in professional masseuses. It's just, it was just a matter of, of using the experience to continually learn and upgrade the experience.
1: So, in creating this unique experience you you talk about kind of three three hallmarks of your approach knowing the customer, saying yes all the time, and creating effortless enjoyment yeah or fun and and what you've just talked about goes into those things, but it in knowing the customer, it sounds like there is an opportunity and, and a risk of of really no longer being their host and you start being their therapist. Like you know them so well that you know what's going to happen before it happens. And and that can place you into a, I I suspect it places places you in a very difficult position as as a business person when 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 that connection happens.
2: Well, when your business is dependent on those connections it's hard to scale.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: But at, you know, as somebody who was really was really taught my whole life to go above and beyond for people, both from my dad and my mom, um, you know, it became a hallmark of my games. Is that I really cared about people and I really got invested in in their lives. And and you know, you can at the end of the day, you can decide whether or not that worked for you. Um, it it's it's a big responsibility, but it was also kind of um advantageous at times just tough to scale cuz you don't have that kind of bandwidth for everyone
1: and and how did the players react as and how did they change as those as that process developed for you
2: well it made collecting money a lot easier
1: <laughs> okay well we're going to we're we're going to leave it at that point for the moment We're talking with Molly Bloom, former poker impresaria, Olympic class athlete, motivational speaker, and author. If you have questions, tweet them to us at bizdisrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're going to take a short break for some messages for our sponsors. Stick around, and we'll be right back.
0: Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAMBusiness. Again, that's at VoiceAMBusiness. And stay current. Gavin Solmanese is the experienced leader for complex financial matters, restructuring, and litigation consulting. Whatever your situation, we have the ability and know-how to restore troubled companies to profitability and growth we've successfully completed financial advisory engagements for hundreds of companies that have gone on to renewed health and success no matter the size or complexity of the case our clients always work directly with senior professionals and receive exceptional work product we know that asking the right questions is always the first step in defining the true problem. Generating alternative solutions and finding a clear path forward is what we do. To us, it's all about results. What you do next is what counts. When there are tough decisions and hard choices to make, you need smart, strategic people beside you. Choose the team who never stops working until your problem, dispute, or financial crisis is resolved. Visit Gavin Solmanese at gavinsolmanese.com or call us at 302 655 8997. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to contact at disrupted.business. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back. If you have questions, tweet them to us at disrupted or email them to comments at disrupted.business. We're talking business lessons from unexpected places with Molly Bloom. Molly, how did, your, how did your business change once you went out on your own? How did the nature of the, the games and the nature of the business change?
2: Uh, well, everything changed. Um, I was responsible for <clears throat> the money. I was responsible for whatever happened uh, to people and players during, during the games and after the games, and you know, the, the responsibility increased exponentially
1: yeah so in the if, if for for those who have seen the film based on your book Molly's game you know the 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 game in the in the viper room players come in hand you a stack of cash they get that amount in chips and that's that's what they're gambling with in reality you became the bank they you know they they may or may not have come in with a stack of cash but then as they lost they were borrowing essentially from you to okay. continue playing yep and, and, and so you're, you're, you're extending credit to, to people who like to gamble, which is always a, an opportunity rife for profit, but mm-hmm. also problems. Um, what are the, what are the transactional risks? What are the operational risks that you had to deal with in running this business?
2: First of all, I had to do a really good job of vetting new players. Yeah. Um, that was critical. And I don't know if you spent any time in LA, Ted, but a lot of people drive Ferraris and don't have any liquidity. That's right. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, it's, and, and especially uh, before there are social media and the, the ways to kind of like track some, track somebody's real story. Yeah. Um, so that was a super challenging part. Um, you know, I had to, I, I hired uh, private investigators and um, made friends at banks. You know, I, I I I had to do all of this kind of on my own and without um, a department to do this or you yeah. know um, a consultant or whatever. So that that was the first thing. Um, the second thing was I had to keep the the quality and the integrity of the game at the highest level possible. Because if I did that, then there was a built-in insurance plan, which was that stiffing this game was social suicide. Mm-hmm. And that is what kept me safe for so long. Now th- that, you know, you bring in an outsider and you don't have that kind of insurance or you miscalculate uh, where someone is financially. And, you know, th- again, like that, that's not gonna hold you. But, but that, you know, that was the main fail safe for me. And for this game.
1: And did that dynamic change when you repositioned to New York and, and restarted? So
2: I restarted in New York and I, I, I built th- the biggest poker game in the world. And it was gigantic. It was a $250,000 buy-in and people were lo- losing and winning obscene amounts of money. Uh, someone lost $100 million in one night. Um, believe it or not, at that game, same concept prevailed. But what I did in New York is I started to really scale and I started to run several games a day, you know, and the lower, the lower stakes, the higher stakes, the, the, um, the Hold'em variants, et cetera. And that was really hard to control and manage because they're, you know, it was a They were transient games. So,
1: right. The social
2: suicide thing wasn't as, as, uh, that's fixed in, in those circles.
1: Right. Uh, but even even the threat of social suicide, even the social gravity of mm-hmm. the game, still there are players who are going to go off book and 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 do something that is ultimately self-destructive and and does and they do that at the cost of the other players and it and really at at your cost.
2: Yeah, and that that was another skill I needed to learn, which was knowing when to cut someone off because there is an amount that somebody won't, can't pay. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's tricky because if you don't give them more credit, they'll say, well, I didn't have enough firepower to come back. So it
1: <laughs> I lost all of your money because you didn't give me more money.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's gambler logic. And the more I talk about this, the more I'm just so happy. This is not my job anymore. <laughs>
1: And yet talking about it is
2: right. Talking about it is actually doing it. It's, not, it's not, uh, my circus, not my monkeys. You
1: know? that, that's right. You, you wrote in the book about going to the bank to deposit a night's, a night's proceeds mm-hmm. and having the bank more or less unceremoniously walking you out the door saying, we don't want your business anymore. Here's a check. Yep how many times did that happen and, and where are you even, what's going on in your mind at that point?
2: I was terrified. I thought thought there was going to be like uh, the FBI in the parking lot waiting for me. And, you know, that didn't happen until many years later.
1: Right. And and (laughs) wasn't a parking lot.
2: Yeah. When that happened, uh, it was scary. And it was also kind of BS because I was, what I was doing was legal. Right. And these guys that were playing had poker accounts. And so like they had different accounts on the check would say poker account. And I guarantee you that, you know, Toby Maguire wasn't getting walked out of out of the bank.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and was that still LA? Or that was was LA. that New York? That was LA. Yeah. In going back to some of the transactional and, and operational risks that you, that the business faced, you, you were guaranteeing players winnings, whether or not the losers who had gotten overextended paid, what was the biggest loss that you took?
2: Um,
1: two hundred fifty. $250,000. Yeah. And is that from one player? Yeah. And, and what, what's the story there?
2: I don't know, but he still calls me from time to time to ask why we're not friends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so, uh, Oh, I, I aspire to the, uh, to the self-confidence.
2: I, I, you know, the, the story there is that I got reckless. Yeah. And I started extending credit to people. I think I was, I think I've gotten stiffed, you know, enough times, not enough times that it made the business model unsustainable at all. Like uh in the beginning i mean i think in the first 7 years i got stiffed one time and then the 7th and 8th year i got super reckless and 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 i was stiffed a lot but um you know that first time i was stiffed it was a surprise it was a shock and then never again because um i just became pretty uh able to recognize when somebody was playing above their means and and so that 250000 that I extended, uh, you know, I, I knew I was taking a risk. I knew if he didn't win that night, I was probably going to be screwed, and I was right.
1: And and so when a player decides they're just not making good on on their obligation, what are they – What what's the premise? What's the, what is their pretense? Is it, I don't have it, I'm not never giving it to you? Or is it, well, I shouldn't have to pay it because, and here's my laundry list of things I just made up?
2: No, it's always like, I'm going to get it to you. Okay. <laughs> I, it, the money's coming, you know? Okay.
1: Uh, that that seems to be a truism across all businesses, across all creditors and, and debtors.
2: Yeah. And I mean, they always want to play it. again. They're like, just let me come play on Tuesday and I'll win it back. You know? Right. I mean, the thing that I didn't realize in the beginning, because I was young and everyone was so rich and so successful. And in the beginning, I think I thought people, uh, sat above the problems that we all have, which I know for sure is not true now, but I didn't know how much of this was about addiction. Yeah. Um, and so much of it was, um, there were very few people I think playing in these games that were just doing so recreationally and for fun. Yeah. I I think it had a hold on most people.
1: And, and in some respects, um, you got pulled into that as well.
2: Oh, no question. I mean, deep. Yeah. So
1: when, I mean, when you were running multiple games in New York, how, how were you surviving?
2: Um, you know, I had really lost my way by that time. Yeah. Um, I was taking pills to stay up and pills to come down and drinking a lot and you know, behaving super recklessly and just kind of in some ways it seemed like I was just seeking to destroy myself. Um, I think I didn't like who I was anymore. I didn't like what I was doing. I didn't like who I'd become. I'd become so materialistic and everything was about money and power and greed. And that was so far from the person that I grew up, the, so far from the person I was raised to be. And, um, you know, it just, it, it really started to get extraordinarily dark, both internally and externally. And, and, uh, you know, it was bad, bad news.
1: It's interesting that you say that, um, because, you know, I, I, I've read your book obviously, and, and I've, I've had the pleasure of, of having conversations unrelated to any of this stuff with you in settings related to my work and probably related to your work, but, but, I guess as close to a personal interaction as you're going to get in that context. And when I, when I revisit the book, there are elements that I simply do not recognize in the person with whom I have had conversations. And I imagine that's because you went through a very long and very challenging and very difficult process of, of of rediscovering yourself as, as, as all of this came to an end.
2: Yeah, there's no question about that. I, you know, I, I guess I would look at that as in two kind of phases. Phase one was the universe was like, you're going to recognize this, recognize this, whether you like it or not, Molly, because we're going to send, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, I had run-ins with the Italian mob. I had, you know, I was arrested by 17 FBI agents. I, um, was very addicted to pills, um, I became a convicted felon and a social pariah and the tablets were telling my story. So, you know, there was that piece of the equation of like um, rock bottom and the hits just keep coming, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And I take credit for, for my part in that. Like I created that scenario, but the consequence and the downfall was extraordinarily difficult.
1: Yeah.
2: And then I sort of, focused entirely on the way back. Okay, here I am. I'm 35 years old. I'm millions of dollars in debt. I'm a convicted felon. No one wants to talk to me. Reputation's destroyed. Like, what's the way back, you know? And, and I just put all of myself into that, into rebuilding a life and figuring out how to have a second chance. And, and you know, I, I really landed on, there's just a couple things I had left and one of them was the story. And I thought that could, I thought that could be the way, the way through, you know?
3: Yeah.
2: And I, I, you know, pulled it off. I published this memoir. I somehow convinced Aaron Sorkin to write this movie. And then I got to this place where I had this stark realization that I had—I was still the person inside that was very broken and very dysfunctional. Um, and there was no amount of Oscar nominated movie, best-selling memoir, redemption, comeback. That was going to address that, and so then I spent the next four years really figuring out that inside work. You know, figuring out how to redefine what success meant to me, on how to not predicate my health and well-being on external validation and money in the bank, and you know, levels of success. Um, I I learned about how to curb the more disease. You know, it was just, I got to this place where myself and everyone around me was never satisfied. You know, we, we always wanted more and it was a prison. Um, I got sober. I, I learned again how to show up for other people and how to lead with integrity and, and reconnect to those core moral values. And, and it was that work that I did. Listen, I, you know, I, I can't discount the comeback, the external comeback because that was also critical. I was living with my mom. I was, you know, I had, didn't even have a bank account. Like those things needed to get fixed, but just as profoundly and maybe even more the inside, the inside work needed, needed to get done. And, and you know, that's, that's where I changed. Cause if I hadn't have done, had done that Ted, like I could be in the same, a similar place to where I was, you know? Yeah all the success and somehow ready to burn it down because I hadn't addressed those, you know, those deficiencies or the, or that dysfunction that, you know, I, I somehow developed it through life.
1: When I was, when I was 27 years old, I, uh, I, I, I got divorced and after, and, 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 Unbelievably short marriage. I think it was a statistical blip in tax status. It it didn't last (laughs) a year, um, which is good. No property, no kids, clean and easy. And a fellow who I worked for, I worked for his company at the time, um, who was older and, and wiser than his years, said to me one afternoon when I told him what was going on, he said, you know, you're probably too young to appreciate this now, but now is the perfect time to become your own best friend. And, and I I took a lot of inventory and I decided, well, I can actually mold the person that I want to be. It sounds like you had the same thing. What who was your voice? Was it internally? Was there somebody out there that 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 gave you this nugget of wisdom? Did it come from the recovery process?
2: I think it came I think it's multifactorial. It it came when I realized, you know, I had this moment where the producer of, of my movie, Mark Gordon, who's a very lovely guy. I mean, just champ fought for and championed this movie, but very stoic and has been around Hollywood forever and nothing really excites him. <laughs> you know. And he called me to tell me that the movie was finished. It was edited. And he said, it's extraordinary. And he said, I'm, I'm sending you a bank wire. And it was like, in that moment, I knew that there was going to be this movie coming out about my life by the, you know, one of the most prolific screenwriters of our time Mm
3: -hmm.
2: who had written biopics about Steve Jobs and Zuckerberg and, you know, all these, all these important people and that I was going to have money again. And I just waited to be okay. You know, I waited for that sort of existential ache and the self-loathing and the shame and all that stuff to go away. And it didn't, and so then to, to your point, that was this watershed moment in my life where I realized that it's a whole different path for that stuff. And so I went, I moved back to Colorado and I got sober, like real sober this time. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I worked the 12 steps, which are just an incredible, just an incredible course of action for any human being to take. You know, you learn so much about yourself, you get to apologize to people in heartfelt and authentic ways, you get to um, look really fearlessly at at who you are and what you've been in the world and, and start to make real changes. Another uh, thing that was incredibly useful and important for me was the practice of meditation which allowed me to start looking at my mind instead of being a hundred percent identified with my mind so i could see when the when the internal critic starts chirping and i could start to have some power and agency over what's happening in my mind and like you said you know you, you start to be able to mold yourself into who and what you want to be you start to have this power over your thoughts over your emotions over your life that you know I didn't have before. I, I was a, a slave to the, the bigger, better thing, the, the new relationship or the, you know, the, the 200 grand I was making at a poker game in a night or, or the, the, the party or the drug or the alcohol. I was, I just lived in this like constant um, cycle of trying to feel better by, by external things. And I, I had no idea that it could be that you could do it yourself. know and and that is the only way to do it and then i had i met an an incredible mentor teacher who taught me about living in in this way and and living a spiritual life and for me that's not religious it's it's you know practicing core values and being of service to other people and um looking at you know the way you show up and and how and looking for ways to improve that and you know it I read probably a hundred books on psychology and neuroscience and um, Buddhism. (laughs) You know, it was a, it it was, I did what I always did, right? Like I, I was like, this is the goal. I'm going to do all the research in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm going to figure out, I'm going to make a plan and then I'm going to be disciplined about it. I mean, that's how I have done all the things in my life. And when I applied it to this, you created the the greatest ROI that I've ever experienced.
1: So you, you, you took that sense of competitiveness in which you were raised and you simply turned it on yourself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yep. On being, on on getting better and being better. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The game, you're past the game. You're, you're past, um, you're past dealing with the department of justice. <laughs>
2: yes. For the most part.
1: And, and what, what happens then? What did you, what you, 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 you found a a voice as a motivational speaker, a, even a, a casual read of your, your Twitter feed shows that you are an unwavering advocate for people who are going through recovery or have gone through recovery. Um, you've talked about wanting to, to land in something that helps women be successful
2: yeah i feel particularly motivated to to be a voice for women just because i i know that experience um Mm -hmm. and you know that's why i'm writing this second book um it's it's really a, a somewhat of a sequel to molly's game but but really about the concepts that we're talking about here which i think is much more universal um these 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 ways in which we can um happen to our own power and manage our, you know, our, our lives, our emotions, our relationships, um, you know, and, and to learn how to be successful in, in whatever we set out to achieve. So it's, it's the lessons um, in the second book. And, and, you know, I just, I, I don't think I could go through life, not sharing what I've learned in the last four years
3: yeah.
1: because
2: it so profoundly changed my life.
1: And what's next after you're, you're writing a second book. What's that? What's next after that?
2: Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, when I, when I, when I'm in something, I'm in it a hundred percent. So it's hard for yeah. me to, to, you know, kind of what, <clears throat> you know, I, um, I'm working on a documentary as well and, and a podcast all in the same vein. So I think that, I'm looking at this book launch as more of like a, a, a movie launch, you know? Yeah. So I want to scale it up so that as many people as possible can, if they want to, can, can hear this message and and benefit in the ways that I've benefited.
1: I've, I've had the, the unique experience of watching you on stage give color commentary to a scene in the movie where a a mob enforcer is basically beating the hell out of you. Um, and, and then, you know, sitting down next to me and having a perfectly normal conversation as if as if that didn't just happen. Um, and, and, and so I'm not going to ask you what part of all of that you, you regret or wish hadn't happened, but I will ask you what's, what are the things that you look back on and say that was, that, that was worth it. That, that experience was absolutely worth it.
2: You know, I, i've I've stayed out of that game. Um, the picking and choosing and recurating a life. Yeah. Uh, I think if I went down that road, it would drive me mad. Yeah. I'd really like that money back. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I'd really like to not have terrorized my parents as much as I did. the The fact is is that I'm that here's where we are, and the and I guess I've focused more on what I can do right now mm-hmm. with all this experience to, to give it purpose.
1: Interesting. And we hinted about this, uh, I hinted about this earlier, um, the issue of sexism. Mm-hmm. You know, there one could say that it existed in criminal prosecution. One could certainly say it existed in how players dealt with you and how competitors dealt with you. One of the things that really came up was sexism in the press, um, particularly in the reporting of your situation, and and I don't know that I have a question so much as acknowledging that it's a thing.
2: It's
3: okay, and
1: and and I hope you talk about it.
2: Yeah, well, that was one of the reasons I was so passionate about taking control of the narrative, um, or at least lending my voice to the narrative because the reporting that was done in the press is, was like this girl in a tight skirt that, you know, was a poker madam. And right. the, the truth is, is that, um, I built a, a business, a very successful business at a very yep. young age. And I learned a lot and, um, I took big risks and I made big mistakes, but it was, to say that it was just a, a girl in a tight skirt, you know, bringing drinks to, to celebrities was so reductive and, and I yep. just wasn't, um, I wasn't okay with, with the tabloid reporters writing my story. <laughs> So I I had to take matters into my own (laughs) hands.
1: And I'm glad you did. And unfortunately, we are out of time. Molly, this show is a treat for me. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you'll come back, particularly when you have the new podcast and, and, and the book out there to talk about. Molly Bloom built a high stakes poker game into a $4 million a year business, walked away from a spot on the U.S. national ski team, and a likely spot on the Olympic team is a motivational speaker and author. She's on Twitter at I'm Molly Bloom, and we'll post links to her social media on this show's webpage and the episode. Show notes. Business Disrupted is hosted by me, Ted Gavin. Our executive producer is Robert Cellino. Our audio engineer is Aaron Keller. Our theme song and other original music are by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Branding by Peg Fitzpatrick and PMG Group. PR and social by Carol Lunger, Emily Stern, and ABNC Creative. You can find episode notes, show notes, and sign up for our newsletter at our website at disrupted.business. Email your thoughts to contact at Disrupted. You've been listening to Business Disrupted on Voice America Business and the World. Talk Radio Network.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Business Disrupted. Be sure to join Ted Gavin for another edition of the program and some more great stories next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.